The Patrick Madrid Show is the real deal. They got my stamp of approval, baby. Peace out. Compelling insights, unpredictable conversations, encouragement for your day. It's The Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio. One thing I can promise is this will be a placenta-free hour on The Patrick <laughs> Madrid Show. Thank you. Yes. No mas placenta aquí. Um, have a note here. Hey, by the way, 888-914-9149. That number is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. 888-914-9149. I've gotten a ton of emails about the placenta thing, so I think we've... I think it's run the course. Uh, here's a note that comes in from... Harrison. Harrison says, Patrick, I'm a senior at Ohio State University. I picked up listening to your show from my dad, who's a daily listener. I recently transferred to Ohio State, and most of my friends here are not Catholic. Those that aren't, and, and those who are Catholic are not practicing Catholics. I've recently found this to be more challenging and, and often face many questions about my faith and why I believe the things I do. One question I came across is, how do you know your beliefs are true when there are so many different religions existing in the world? What is a good way I can answer this? Also, any recommendations for books about defending our faith would be appreciated. Thanks, Harrison. You got it, Harrison. I appreciate that. And uh, by the way, first thing I'd like to suggest is that you get plugged in at the Newman Center uh, Chapel on the Ohio State campus. They have daily Mass. Actually, I think they've got more than one Mass each day, confessions, uh, excellent priests of the diocese who are there. Uh, some Dominican friars are there. And it's a really good place to nourish your faith and receive the sacrament. So that's the Newman Center on the Ohio State campus in beautiful downtown Columbus, Ohio. So check that out. Um, now, as far as the, this challenge, how do you know your beliefs are true? Well, I understand there's a sort of a superficial plausibility to think that, well, everybody claims to know the truth. Everybody claims that their truth is the truth. So why is your truth special? What makes your religious convictions true as opposed to the other ones? Why don't we take a step back and say, let's look at Jesus, first of all. So Jesus was incarnated in a time and a place where his people, the Jews, had the truth. Now, the nations, all of the pagan Gentile peoples that surrounded them, they worshiped false gods, they did animal sacrifice, they did human sacrifice, they had their notions of the, you know, the various divinities who controlled the weather and the harvests and fertility and war and the ocean and all these things. And God's people had the truth because it had been revealed to them. And they they kept apart from the nations. They kept separate from the Gentiles so that they wouldn't be corrupted by them. And in biblical history, you can see that every time God's people did sort of stray into pagan territory, they were always corrupted by it. So if we look at Jesus's advent into human reality when he was, when he was incarnated, he said, I have come to tell you the truth, but more importantly, the whole truth. I'm going to share with you now, I'm going to teach you things, and he's talking to the Jews, that build upon what you already know, but guess what? There's more. God is your Father. I am God. 
As a matter of fact, I am the Son of God. I come from heaven. I come from the Father. No one has seen the Father except the Son, Jesus said. Before Abraham was, I am, he said. So he made these repeated claims to being God, and he was making them to an audience that had built-in hostility to this revelation because they believe, and rightly so, um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. So they were strict monotheists, and the church recognizes monotheism, of course. We are monotheists. But there was added revelation that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So as Jesus is telling them this, he's also backing up his teachings by performing miracles. So these are miracles that were, by eyewitness accounts, inexplicable. How, how do you actually raise somebody from the dead? How do you actually control the weather? How do you read people's secret thoughts? How do you cast out demons? How do you say to a man who's been born blind and has been blind his whole life, now you can see, and he can see? How do you say to somebody who's been crippled for a long time, get up and walk, and he does get up and walk, and so on? These were ways that Jesus demonstrated that he is who he claimed to be. Now, it didn't, it wasn't just that. So Jesus has these powerful teachings. He controls the weather. He reads secret thoughts. He casts out demons. He raises the sick and the dead and all of these things. But above and beyond all of that, he said, and then I'm going to die. And on the third day, I will rise from the dead. So he not only said what he would do, he told them when he would do it. And all the eyewitness accounts say, you know what? Jesus did rise from the dead. We saw him. We spoke to him. We had breakfast with him. He made breakfast for us, the apostles would tell you, because we were in Galilee on the, sea, the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is there, and he's making breakfast, and he says, come on over and have some breakfast with me. And see that I am not a ghost. It's really me, and it really was. And these eyewitness accounts of Jesus being risen from the dead, numbered into the thousands. We're told in the, in the Gospels that at one point, upwards of 500 people saw the glorified, resurrected Jesus. So what we're talking about here now, Harrison, is you now have a group of people who are saying, I saw him, I talked to him, I saw him. In some cases, I touched his body, like in the case of St. Thomas, now, here's where things get interesting, because Jesus could have been a charlatan. He could have been a magician. He could have been like a pen and teller of his era, where he could do amazing things that nobody could explain, but it was really just smoke and mirrors, possible. Uh, Jesus could have been a wise teacher who had all sorts of interesting ideas. Maybe he was a savant. Maybe he was, you know, he, he had some special clairvoyance that the average person didn't have. Maybe he could manipulate things to make it look like he was healing people or whatever. Maybe, maybe. But now you have a group of people who were with him and they lived with him, they traveled with him, they listened to him, they watched him. Some of them rejected him. John chapter 6 is a good example. They just said, "I um, this is something up with which I cannot put, this teaching on eating your body and drinking your blood. I'm not going to do that. And they left him. So it wasn't as though it was all, you know, happiness and butterflies and 
and everybody felt warm and fuzzy. There were times when some of his followers said, I can't go for that, and they left him. But that leaves us with a cadre of people who were eyewitnesses who claim that they saw Jesus rise from the dead. They said, we saw the miracles, we heard the preaching, we believe it. It was amazing, it was weird, it was terrible when Jesus died on the cross. We thought it was a a big, you know, failure. And then he rose on the third day and we saw him, we talked to him. And here's why this is important. Because there was automatic pushback from initially from the Jews who said, knock it off, you guys, stop talking about Jesus. We thought he was out of our hair now, but you guys keep talking about him. And so the apostles and others, they were whipped, they were jailed. Uh, St. Stephen, a good example, he was stoned to death because he was preaching Jesus. So the pushback was swift and severe, and people were killed painfully for their testimony that Jesus rose from the dead. And then, of course, that expanded, and and more and more people came to faith in Jesus, not all of whom initially at least had seen Jesus rise from the dead, but they believed in the testimony of those who did. And part of the reason, maybe the main reason that they believed in their testimony outside of the supernatural gift of faith, is because those people who claimed to see Jesus risen from the dead, they didn't back down. When the Roman soldier put his sword to your throat and said, you claim that you saw Jesus rising from the dead, that goes against our rules here in the Roman Empire, and you better recant it or we're going to kill you. So this is what we're faced with, Harrison. How do we explain, humanly speaking, how do you explain, I don't mean you, but the critics, the naysayers, how do you explain All of these people being willing to die for something that they knew wasn't true, if it wasn't true. If it didn't really happen, if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, why would we, what what motive could we ascribe to them for saying, fine, kill me? And that's what happened over and over and over again. They died terrible, painful deaths, often by being tortured. And not all of them, by the way, who did see Jesus die face to face, or they, that did see Jesus in person. So that leaves us with a, a part of the answer to your question. One way that you can know that what you believe as a Catholic, a follower of Jesus Christ, is true is because it's been tested not only by the teachings and the miracles, by the death, but also by the resurrection of Jesus. He proved Unlike Muhammad, unlike Moses, unlike uh, the Buddha, unlike any other significant world religion figure, founder, whatever, none of whom claimed to be God, he claimed to be God. And he proved that he was who he said he was by rising from the dead. And then we're faced with all these people who saw him rise from the dead. There's no way, humanly speaking, to account for all of these people being willing to die for something that they really knew wasn't true. There's nothing in it for them. There's no payoff. There's no benefit. You get nothing out of it except a very painful death. So why would they do that? doesn't make any sense. So now that we've taken a step back and we've looked at this, now we can say, all right, well, we have reasons to believe that this is true. 
we have evidence. Now, you believe primarily out of faith. We don't believe in Jesus because of evidence. We have evidence, but that's secondary. That's after the fact. You believe in Jesus because you've been given the supernatural gift of faith. And here we are at the historical remove of 2,000 years, give or take, from these events actually happening. You and I didn't see Jesus. You and I didn't see the apostles who saw Jesus. We're 2,000 years downstream. And yet we've been given the supernatural gift of faith, and so we believe on that basis. But our faith is bolstered by evidence that is, I would argue, irrefutable. So those are some of the things that once you have them firmly embedded in your own mind, then you can begin to articulate that kind of thing when you have a conversation. And you can point to the resurrection of Jesus. Well, that's one big reason why I believe that my what I believe is true, because Jesus taught it and Jesus is God. How do I know he's God? Because he proved it. A book you're wondering about, I would recommend you go to a book called Handbook of Catholic Apologetics. Handbook of Catholic Apologetics. It's co-authored by Dr. Peter Kreeft, K-R-E-E-F-T, and uh, Father Ron Ticelli, T-A-C-E-L-L-I. Yes, I know it should be pronounced Ticelli, and that's how he pronounces it privately, but everybody says Ticelli, so we'll go with that. Father Ron Ticelli is the co-author. This book is a compendium of exactly what you're looking for, Harrison. It will give you, in a systematic, easy-to-understand, very effective way, all the ways in which you can deal with the kinds of challenges and questions that people are asking you on campus at Ohio State I'm sorry, at The Ohio State University. And you'll be in such a good position to have fruitful and beneficial conversations with these people. So start there. Secondly... I would recommend that you tell all your friends and fellow students who are interested about Relevant Radio. Have them get the app on their phone. And they can listen to this program and Kale's program and Father Richard Simon's program and Drew's program. Everybody's programs on this on this radio network will be helpful to them in one way or another. So let all of your peers know about the Relevant Radio app. And then thirdly, I would recommend that you go to YouTube and look up the Aquinas 101 videos. They're produced by the the Thomistic Institute. They have a number of different kind of videos, but I recommend specifically the ones called Aquinas 101. And they are are thoroughly Thomistic, because these are Dominican friars who produce them. Thoroughly Thomistic, so you have the razor-sharp, laser-beam focus thought of St. Thomas Aquinas on all kinds of issues that the people that you know on campus are thinking about. And you can share that with them. You can text them links to those videos. And I, of course, if I were you, I would steep yourself in those videos so you have got a good, strong storehouse of knowledge. I'm glad you called. I'm sorry. I'm glad you wrote to me, Harrison. I appreciate it. And more power to you. I'm glad that you're there at The Ohio State University. Let's go to Roberta now in Wausau, Wisconsin. Good morning, Roberta. Good morning. Um, I know we're on a different, um, I, hold on a second. We're on a different subject now, but I just wanted to respond to the gal who called in from the 600-bed hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't hear any statistics as to how many of those different things she mentioned happened. I had a C-section after a uh, cesarean and I know a lot of other women who did and 
your care providers are trained. I mean, birth is almost looked at as a disease and something that is dangerous. And yeah, those things can happen, but um, they're not, there's a lot more success than failure. And I just, I don't want women to be afraid of having a home birth. In fact, my husband and I used to live in San Antonio and we met, used to meet with couples and we would, they wanted to know more about it. And Mm -hmm. they all went on to have successful, um, VBACs. They're called vaginal birth after, um, cesarean. So I just wanted to weigh in on that and, um, quell the fears of, Oh, but this this isn't a fear-based thing. This is a science-based thing. Um, I recommend the opposite to what you're recommending, Roberta. You know, but we all have a different opinion on this issue. I'm glad that your home births went well. I really am, really happy for you. And I acknowledged early on that I I believe I'm in the minority on this issue. So there's no need to argue about it. Uh, plenty of people feel like you do. Some people feel like I do. We can all get along. It's not a fear issue. It's just like what is the safest, best route, and different people will take different ways well, of doing it. Well, and I it. knew a lot of women whose doctors actually lied to them about their condition, about a placenta, and they went to another doctor, and that was. I mean, these things do happen, and I'm not. Yeah, I know, and I know a lot of doctors who are good doctors, and they do the right thing, and you know. For every one that you give me, I could give you at least one. So there's no point in us keeping score here, Roberta. I'm happy for you. I'm glad you had that positive experience. This is not about fear. This is about prudence. And everybody gets to make the choice that they want. So let's leave it at that. Otherwise, this becomes an unproductive conversation where people are arguing over something that's a matter of choice. Thanks, Roberta. All right. Break time. And... um. (laughs) A lot of you are emailing me about this home birth issue. Some of you are really into it. Some of you are not. Um, But I think we said everything we need to say about it. And we'll continue on to other matters. 888-914. Same thing with placentas too, by the way. No mas, por favor. I'll be right back. This hour sponsored by Christendom College. Send your child to Christendom College's high school summer program, The Best Week Ever. Use promo code RELEVANTRADIO and get 50% off. Spots fill up very quickly, so apply today at thebestweekever.com. That's thebestweekever.com. This is The Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio and relevantradio.com. I was quasi expecting that. Yeah. It's just too good. It's too good to to not use that with. Um, okay, so did you find out what's on the menu for lunch today? <laughs> so look at all these you, calls. You haven't gotten an answer on that one. All right. Uh back to the back to the phones. Uh John in Chicago. Good morning and welcome. Hi, Patrick. Uh, Patrick, hi. I was just wondering hi. I, uh, your opinion, um, when they bring up a two-state solution for Israel, okay. and uh, in Scripture, God gave that land, you know, from the Tigris to Euphrates to the river to the uh, west, which would approximately be Nile, and then the Mediterranean, then there was a, he 
designated it by tribes near the up near where the Jordan River was, and mm-hmm. and David eventually went up and got that. But uh, that land was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in an eternal covenant. And then, lo and behold, after the two thousand years of them being away from that land, they get it back. So it really seems like God meant it, you know, for them to be there. And so I'm thinking, and I would like to get your opinion. What do you think? I think it should be a one state if we obey God's law. Uh, and I know politicians are thinking two states because they want peace. But no matter when Israel gives away land, they never seem to get peace. No, they don't. That's true. So are you asking for my opinion or my thoughts on that issue? Yeah. Uh, I mean, to me, from a scriptural standpoint, Mm-hmm. It seems wrong for human beings to divide that country up. Yeah, if I'm understanding Scripture correctly, and there's, I don't, there's, I don't, I think it's wrong. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. No, no, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, please continue. No, I, Patrick, I was just. It just seems wrong to go against God's will. If that, if that's an eternal covenant between the Israelites, Jacob, and and finally right down to us, regardless of what politicians say, you know, land, the whole earth belongs to God, and he gave away two sections, one to the Israelites and one to the Ishmaelites. So, yeah, I um, understand. Yeah. Well, let's, okay, here are a few thoughts that I have on this, John. Um, I will begin by saying that this is such a complicated and tangled mess that I don't begin to presume that I have the solution to this problem that never seems to be resolved. Um, I acknowledge that there are passages in Scripture where the Lord does say, I'm giving you this land. So he, he promised Moses and the Israelites when they came out of Egypt, out of slavery, and wandered in the Sinai Desert for 40 years. He said, I am gonna, I'm going to give you this land of milk and honey, that is currently inhabited by the denizens of that region, like the Canaanites and the Jebusites and the various other peoples who were there, Philistines included, by the way, which is the etymology for the word Palestine or Palestinian comes from that word Philistine. But in any case, God sent his people there and they did battle with some of these groups and they subdued them and they moved in. They took that land from them. And this was, as you say correctly, this was something mandated by God. So there is biblical historical precedent for that. And that, of course, is part of the discussion. But in the ensuing 3,000 years, give or take, um, the land is now no longer what it was then, insofar as, you know, in the modern era, of course, there have been times of great desolation or depopulation. And, for example, when the Ottoman Empire was was defeated in World War I and the, the Sultanate was discontinued and the Muslim uh, hegemony was broken in terms of the Ottoman Empire, this land was largely unoccupied. There were Jews living there. There were what we would call Palestinians living there, Arabs. And so this was a, an area that was that had been subjugated by, for the prior several hundred years, by the Muslim Turks, and when they were removed from power, then this was assigned to Great Britain as a territory that it would administer. 
And this is why Great Britain was at the center of this effort to establish a homeland for the Jews who were being rejected elsewhere, they were being persecuted elsewhere. And uh, by the time we get to World War II, this becomes a really big problem because of Hitler and everything that was going on in Europe. And the Jews were often turned away from seeking asylum in other countries. So as a political uh, workaround, as a political solution, when the Balfour Declaration was issued and and this Jewish state was established, you had people living there who didn't want that. And so repeatedly, you talk about the two-state solution, repeatedly, both from the, um, from the what's the word I'm looking for here, the United Nations or the League of Nations, which eventually became the United Nations, there were um, proposals for a two-state solution repeatedly, and the, the Jewish denizens of the new state of Israel said, yes, we'll do that. And the Arabs said, no, we won't do that. So the the two-state solution continued to be offered, and it was rejected not by the Jews, but by the Palestinians. So then we have the rise of the PLO and the compromise with the Oslo Accords. And we have now, a, in essence, a sort of de facto two-state solution where you've got the West Bank and you have Gaza and Israel sort of in and around there. Um, as a Jewish state, but that's not working as evidenced by what we saw on October the 7th with the massacre by the Hamas terrorists and the ongoing, never-ending um, cries for you know, from the river to the sea, which of course means genocide to the Jews, wipe them all out. They don't want a one-state or two-state solution, they being the Palestinians, and they're you know, their um, amen corner and the other Muslim countries, they want a one-state solution and they don't want Israel to exist. And they don't want the Jews to live there. So where do we go from here? What what can be done? I don't know. I, and the two-state solution is back on the table again. As of just in the past couple of days, I, as I understand it, Benjamin Netanyahu, think of him what you will, he has announced that he is willing to consider a negotiated arrangement for a two-state solution. What will that amount to? I don't know. I don't know if it'll work. I don't know, given the given the insistence on the part of the Palestinians and, and groups like Hamas, for example, they don't want any Jews there at all. They want to get rid of them. They want them to be gone. And the question is, well, gone to where? I mean, whether or not God 3,000 years ago promised this land to the Jews, it, it obviously didn't work that way in historical terms, the Jews were displaced through the diasporas, the Babylonian captivity, for example. The land of Israel was depopulated many times over. This is a modern political state. It's a secular state. Um, could a secular group of Jewish politicians actually qualify as the Jewish people that God said, I'm giving you this land? These are all vexing questions. I don't claim to have the answers to them. Um but it's not as simple, it doesn't seem to me, as saying, well, let's have a two-state solution, because every time that has been proffered, it's been rejected by the Arabs. And every time, you know, we we seem to have a kind of uneasy truce, we've got problems like October the 7th, and it, it's just, to my mind, insoluble outside of some divine intervention. What that will be, I don't know. So I could go on and on, but those are some of the thoughts that come to my mind as you raise the question. And I'm, I'm glad you did, John. It's one of these topics that we've got to 
keep our eye on. But how this is going to sort out, I just don't know. I, I am opposed, certainly, to any effort to eradicate the Jews, to eliminate Israel as a country. Uh, whether or not we like how it got there, it's there now. And you've got 10 million people, roughly, maybe a few more than that, who are living there. Uh, were there injustices perpetrated against the Palestinians who lived there before? Yeah, there were. Were there injustices perpetrated against the Jews before and, and during that time? Yes, there were. So there's plenty of blame to go around, and it's a mess, and I just don't know what to recommend. So those are my thoughts, John, and I, I guess I'll leave it at that. I do appreciate your phone call. Let's go to Bill. I'm sorry, Father Bill now in Chicago. Good morning, Father Bill. Uh, good morning to you and everybody listening. Thank you. So, Patrick, I hugely appreciated your response, uh, your expertise and knowledge about apologetics. I thought I would just add a little bit to the um, the counter-argument okay. against Christianity. Um, first of all, the Bible itself says that Christian faith is based on eyewitness testimony. It's yes. not something abstract, like something intellectual, like a theory or a hypothesis or even a theology. I'll give you yes. two examples. The very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, the prologue, Luke shows... I know uh, it well. Showing his <laughs> I quote it often, yes. His gospel. He says, uh, Since many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as those who were eyewitnesses from the beginning have handed them down to us uh, that you may realize the certainty of the teachings you have received. Mm -hmm. Even more clear and compelling is the beginning of the first letter of John. So this is verses 1 and 3. What was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked upon and touched with our hands, the mm-hmm. word of life was made visible. We have seen it and testify to it. Then he repeats that in verse 3. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim now to you. In addition to that, I think it's clear that the four Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles are just accounts of eyewitness, uh, <clears throat> eyewitness uh, testimony uh, mm-hmm. of Jesus of Nazareth. So... Um, I think that we can bring that point to bear, that the Bible itself says Christianity is based on uh, concrete historical events and testimonies and witnesses to that. I couldn't disagree with any of that, Father Bill. In fact, those are passages that, although I didn't raise them today, I routinely, especially the Lucan passage, Luke 1, verses 1 through 4, hugely important to establish that point. I agree with you. I think there's another point that can be brought to bear, and that is in ancient times, in the first century of the Common Era here, it was exceedingly difficult and expensive and laborious and time-consuming to replicate uh, writings because of the parchment. You know, it had a limited lifespan, so they had to keep copying uh, manuscripts over and over again to preserve Mm -hmm. them. So they obviously would not do that for something that wasn't exceedingly important or that they considered authentic. Mm-hmm. So the fact that all these books of the New Testament were preserved through 2,000 years, including the period of history up to the invention of the printing press by Gutenberg, 
they had to be laboriously copied over and over again, shows that they considered this to be true, that it was very, it was very important, not just for them, but for future ages of human history. It's all true, Father Bill. Yeah, all true. All notes from my playbook, um, doing apologetics, these are all important points to bring up. I concur. Yeah. And so I think that when we're in a, a dialogue like that, and uh, the, the dialogue partner puts the burden of proof on us Christians to approve our claim that Jesus of Nazareth was fully God and fully human, we can now say, well, that's what we base our faith on, concrete evidence by eyewitnesses. So we can turn it around and say, what's your proof that Jesus was not God? What proof do you have yeah. now? I've... <laughs> what you're saying is, it rings so true, Father Bill. I've been teaching apologetics at a popular level for, I don't know, 36, 37 years, whatever. And at an academic level, uh, the reason I mention this is because what you're saying is part and parcel of the lectures that I would give on apologetics at university level. And these are important points that you're making. People need to know that. But I'm I'm deeply familiar with the points that you're making, and I agree with you. Patrick, uh, is there a book that kind of summarizes specifically what we're talking about? That uh, it, it says where mm-hmm. in the New Testament um, it says explicitly, like the beginning of Luke and the beginning of one John, uh, that mm-hmm. this is based on testimonies. Is there a book or an article that that kind of lays that all out? So- Indeed, in fact, there are are many such articles, Father Bill. I would recommend the one that I touched on earlier. It's called Handbook of Catholic Apologetics. I'm sure you're familiar with Dr. Peter Kraft. He co-authored that yes. book, and it's really good. It's systematic. It gets into the eyewitnesses, the verses that you mentioned, and much more besides. I think you'll find that a very interesting book. Okay, Patrick, I appreciate that. You got it. Thank you for the call, and God bless you in your ministry. I appreciate that. Well, let's take a break, and we'll come back with more of the Patrick Madrid Show. Before you go, though, I just want to mention that with Lent right around the corner, if you want a transformative Lent for you and your family, watch Father Rocky's Lenten Lessons on the Mass for bite-sized glimpses into every prayer word and and, and gesture from the sign of the cross to the final blessing. These are free video lessons every day of Lent. All you have to do is go to relevantradio.com slash Lent and sign up for free. They'll come right to your email box every day during Lent. This is sponsored by, in part, by the National Center for Padre Pio. Today, we'd like to thank Vincent, who's listening in California, for donating his 1971 Chevy El Camino. Right on. You can join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles, trucks, boats, and RVs by visiting relevantradio.com slash car. That's relevantradio.com slash car. Get connected to the conversation. Call now. 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. Patrick Madrid is on now. Relevant Radio. Got a note from, got a note from a listener who said, speaking of two-state solutions, why don't we get a two-state solution in the great state of Illinois? And uh, I don't think that's going to work. But I understand what you're talking about. 888-914-9149. How about Steve now in West Covina, California? Good morning, Steve. 
Morning, Patrick. Thank you for taking. Oh, I shouldn't. It's say okay. That. No, uh, no, it's okay. Talked, it's okay. We've talked before. I'm the guy that jumps on a train, goes to San Juan Capistrano, quickly goes across the street, pops into the side door of the brand new church, and then goes to the uh, El Adobe for lunch. Hey, in San Juan. I can relate. I like the food at El Adobe. Great restaurant. I. I I know you could. And then as an added bonus, we cross the street again and go to the Swallows Inn and have a yeah. wonderful after-lunch cocktail. So. There used to be a kind of a, 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 not an open-air market, there used to be kind of a market, different shops called El Peón. And that's gone now. But those who who remember old San Juan Capistrano will, will remember El Peón. Did you ever shop there in your travels throughout um, San Juan Capistrano? And I did we lose him? I think we did. Oh no, there he is. Sorry, me. Steve. Sorry, Steve. You That's disappeared okay. for a second, uh -huh. but you're back. I don't want to go away before I make my point. Okay, so I, I want to address the issue of people asking why our church is the church and the universal church and that sort of thing. And you've reinforced so much of what I've lived my entire life. One of them is the fact that we go all the way back thousands of years to Jesus establishing us, mm -hmm. and that's huge. But the other one that gets them directly is that their church has either adopted a number of the uh, uh, aspects of the Catholic Church, or they've rejected them. And mm -hmm. they're very clear about doing that. So, mm -hmm. uh, and then there's a number of other things. W one of the things we're really blessed with is there are so many of us that have a personal relationship with Jesus and the Trinity and, uh, and utilize what Jesus had said about the Holy Spirit. In fact, this whole call right now and you is Holy Spirit motivated. So I, we're just all so That's blessed. kind of you. That's kind of you. And Thank you. so... Well, I also want to thank you for praying for us and before your show and then suggesting it after, because I know a lot of us pray for you. And I'm grateful I just for want that. to give a shout out. I want to give a shout out to my daughter and son-in-law in Georgetown, Texas, Paige and Brian, who now listen to your show. And they're two hours ahead, so they consider it listening to it in the future, even though you are too. <laughs> but they love it. They love it. And what are their names again? Paige and, and who? Paige and Brian. That's cool. Well, yeah, and shout I've out to never, Paige and Brian. Thank you so much. And I've never asked them to listen, but talking on the phone to them, I've quoted so much of what I've learned from your show. She was so naturally curious that she started listening, mm. and now she listens every day. Well, that's super. I'm really happy to hear that. Thank you for being such a faithful listener, Steve. And uh, I'm I'm right there with you. Maybe we'll have to have a purpose-driven taco at El Adobe one of these days. Oh, you know they're there. And I would love to do that. Thank you so much, and we'll keep in touch. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, we'll sit at the Richard Nixon table. It's got a plaque on it where he and Pat Nixon would sit uh, when they were out at the Western White House. And they loved going to El Adobe. Great restaurant. Um, also, real quick, I have a note that came in, and this is from Matt in Milwaukee, and he says, regarding Harrison's email that I read a little while ago, he says, um, you just read Harrison's letter on the air. He's my son. Very proud of him as he is becoming the man that God desires him to be. 
Thanks for airing that segment and thank you for everything. So blessed to be taught and inspired by you. Organic, non-triggering and placenta free. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate it, Matt. And um, you must be a great dad because your son sounds like a great young man. And I'm glad you wrote to me and I'm glad you did too. Thank you. We'll go now to Joe in St. Petersburg, Florida. Hi, Joe. Hey, Patrick. I'm calling on behalf of my brother. He's in his early 60s, and he's recently been diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. Mm. Uh, you know, fortunately, was brought up in the faith. Uh, but very, you know, great, great guy. But, you know, he's worked in the trades all his life. But okay. he's kind of fallen away from the church. And uh, I would love for him to, he has this great opportunity where everything's still with him to, to you know, to make a general confession, to kind of come back to the faith. There's some yeah. absolute things. I want to see him in heaven. So I'm looking for any advice you might have on either a book to read or a retreat to attend or a pilgrimage or something like mm -hmm. that. And I don't know some of the stuff I've read, like I'm, you know, the imitation of Christ, the last four things, you know, anything by Saint Al Alphonsus Liguori. There's a lot of good stuff, but I don't know if that's too much or too intense or if there were, if that's exactly what he needs, you know, to, to look at the reality mm -hmm. of what he's facing. So I'm just kind of seeing if you have uh, any advice to help to get my brother in heaven. Yes. And, does he have any sense? Have they given him any sense of how much time he has? No, uh, there he's undergoing treatment, you know, and he's an optimistic guy, which I love, you know, and he's doing everything he can. But there's some mm -hmm. realities I think, you know, you have to face when it hits certain yeah. organs. It's it's a bad thing. I lost my wife to something similar, and I know that you know now is the time, and not not waiting till the last moment. So I'm really trying yeah. to. Uh, to be prepared for that and get him prepared for that and be in a good state of mind and be at peace. So sure, sure, be, sure. It could be years, man. God, if God, divine providence, we, we've got a lot of time, but I'm just now, it can't hurt. <laughs> no, it can't. You know, no, that's good. I would suggest, Joe, uh, there's one book that I've particularly benefited from, and there are others as well, but this is by St. Robert Bellarmine, and it's called oh. The Art of Dying Well. And it is exactly what it dis what the what the title suggests it it it's his way of saying whether you're going to die 100 years from now or you're going to die tomorrow how do you die well meaning how do you die in the state of grace how do you die prepared to see god face to face what are some of the things that you can begin doing now so when the time comes you're prepared now, there is right. another book by the same title, actually several other different books by the same title by secular authors. I'm not recommending those books. Um, right. I'm recommending this book by St. Robert Bellarmine. So that's The Art of Dying Well. Um, I sure. would recommend The Divine Mercy Chaplet. Perhaps he could begin preparing for his death by praying the Divine Mercy Chaplet every day, 3 p.m. Drew Mariani prays it at 3 p.m. Central right here on Relevant Radio. Maybe he could begin yep. praying that, that'd be a good thing. Pray the rosary would also be a powerful weapon against any remaining issues that he might have to deal with. And, um, I mean, these are just some examples of things he could begin doing. And I would say other things, too. I mean, maybe writing letters or talking to people that, that he might need to apologize to or forgive. You know, a letter of forgiveness, a letter of reconciliation with somebody who's estranged from him things that you wish you could say, and sometimes people feel so much regret because if only I had said I love you or if only I had said I had forgiven you, and then the person dies. So those are things he could do well also as a, yeah. a way of just tidying up 
maybe some loose ends with relationships. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I appreciate that. I will definitely grab that book. Okay. And God bless you and him too. Um, does he have a, a smartphone? Can you listen to relevant radio wherever he is? Yeah. 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 That's, that's, I can suggest that as well. He's got I think it'd be good issues, but you know, yeah, yeah. we'll certainly yeah, have him plug in with Drew at 3 p.m. Central. Maybe that'd be the best place to start off. And in the rosary, the family rosary across America with Father Rocky and Maggie every evening at 7 p.m. Central. That's another resource that's there for him as well. And we'll say a prayer for What's his first name, Joe, so that we could pray for him by name? Uh, Mike. Okay, we'll pray for Mike. Thank you. Let's go to Jane now in Wisconsin. Hello, Jane. Um, I went to a daily mass this morning, and then we have adoration and confession for an hour afterwards. Mm -hmm. And I knew that today, a half an hour after adoration was to end was the school mass for that elementary school that's connected to our church. And so about 10 minutes before adoration was done, two adults and three kids came into the church to go over some stuff for the school mass. And they were kind of loud and not really paying attention that the Eucharist was exposed. And so I got kind of irritated. And mm-hmm. then I thought, well, instead of getting irritated, I can say a prayer for the school kids. But it just, it made me, I was just wondering, like, is it appropriate for me to get annoyed about that sort of thing? Or does Jesus take us as we are? And I shouldn't get <laughs> ruffled when people come into the church and distract me. <laughs> I think that you are right to feel irked or whatever the right word for it is, because those people, maybe without realizing it, are being insensitive. If there's an established time that at that time, adoration is over and the Blessed Sacrament will be reposed, it's no longer exposed, they should wait until that time. It's not appropriate for them to horn in on people's time with the Lord in in the Blessed Sacrament and start doing what they want to do. There's time for that, especially if it's a half an hour before Mass is supposed to start. If there's an interval of time, they can wait until the Blessed Sacrament has been reposed, and then they can do that. So I would probably feel just like you do, Jane, and I imagine you were probably torn. Do I tell them, hey, can you guys knock it off? We're trying to pray here. Or, you know, grin and bear it and and deal with it in silence. Um, I don't know what I would have done, but maybe a, a gentle letter to the parish priest to say, this is going on. Can you please tell the people who are supposed to prepare for Mass to not do that? until after adoration is over. I'll bet he would say, yeah, I can do that. That'd be one way to handle it. Okay. Sounds good. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. You're welcome. When Next time you're in adoration, please pray for us here at Relevant Radio. We'd sure appreciate that. I will. Well, thank you. Thanks, Jane. How about from Jane to Jenny now, also in Wisconsin. Good morning, Jenny, and welcome. Uh, good morning, Patrick. Um, I just wanted to, I've been listening to your show for a long time and truly sincerely appreciate it. As far as your love for apologetics, you're welcome. There is the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. that should become a pilgrimage for anyone in the Judeo-Christian faith. Um, Mm -hmm. I was born Jewish and I converted to Christianity later. And I'm going through the Museum of the Bible and there's rabbis there with their following and there's school kids, Catholic school kids there. And it is an astonishing, astonishing body of work. And it's four floors of just the Museum of the Bible. Yeah, I've heard of it, but I've never ventured in there. I'd love to go see it sometime. 
Oh, it is worth to go just for that, if nothing else in D.C. It is truly astonishing. And you see ancient scrolls and the history. It doesn't have a particular bent as far as um, Catholic, uh, Protestant, or whatever. It is just the history of the Bible. And it is amazing, amazing. And I would love to just get the word out because we have it here in the United States and in the world and the the world we live in now, especially um, with my um, Jewish side, mm-hmm. this anti-Semitism, we need to keep fighting it. And we need to keep fighting it among ourselves because it's to be anti-Semitic is to just be against God, and that mm-hmm. includes Christians. So the more what, we can see... What do your Jewish relatives make of your conversion, and how do they treat you? Do they still embrace you as a family member, or have you been put more at a distance in in some cases? Um, they're, they're fine. I wasn't raised, um, my mom, <laughs> when I told my mom I wanted to become a Christian, she thought I was joining a cult. And mm. it was in high school, and I said, Mom, you know, most parents are happy when their teenagers want to become Christians. And I was just like, yeah. so she, she, you know, to walk her through that one, and now she's, you know, my dad was very happy for me. My dad um, was not Jewish. My mom's Jewish, and my mom's side of the family, therefore Jewish. And I wasn't, so I wasn't raised, um, I wasn't raised to be, um, what's the word, it went right out of my head. Um, you weren't like a religious Jew when you were growing up? Yeah, it wasn't okay. there. It was, it was more on my cousin's side. And so my cousins and my uncle and my auntie, they were fine with it. They were just nervous around me, you know, nervous that mm. I had left the faith. So it, it's just more of... Um, Again, just that Museum of the Bible, crossing those bridges are just really, really important. And um, it, I loved walking through that with rabbis around me and with Catholic priests around me. And it was yeah. just marvelous. It was marvelous. So, so the, the Museum of the Bible, which I have not visited, and it's kind of strange because it's right up my alley. <laughs> I need to make a point of going there. Um, when you go there, or for people who like me who haven't been there, what do you see? Are you seeing manuscripts? Are you seeing um, what are you seeing when you go there? Oh, you you'll see when you walk through. You can even see the history. Um, you know, a, a show that even believe it or not, um, Disney put together that you can walk in and see the creation of the world, and it's created, and then you can see. You know, that starts you out, and then it brings you to a walk through, kind of a a quick walkthrough of the Old Testament and Moses and the, all the steps, kind of a, a, a an overview um, until in, in just the beginning in God. And then you get into um, different, like the different sects of Judaism and then the tribes and how they traveled and how mm-hmm. the Bible was written and what it was written on. And Sounds magnificent. If only there were more time, Jenny, but gosh, thank you so much. You put that on my radar screen now. I always knew about it. I always had heard about it, and I had never visited the History of the Bible Museum. So that's on my list now, Jenny. Thanks to you, and uh, thanks for the call. Well, until tomorrow, I will be praying for you. Please do pray for me, and I promise you tomorrow's show will be placenta-free. 